I think in the general um, field of compliance, it's great that we are seeing more non-lawyers, um, more individuals with different backgrounds, especially with the auditing background, right? So for me, having a forensic accounting background and auditing eye really does help in these proactive assessments. This is Tom Fox. In October, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco gave a keynote speech at the American Bar Association's 36th National Institute on White Collar Crime. Her remarks reframed a discussion about the uses of reason for and perceptions on independent monitors and monitorships. Monaco's remarks should be studied by every compliance professional as they portend a very large change in the way the Department of Justice will use monitors going Over this five-part podcast series sponsored by Affiliated Monitors, we will consider why Monaco's remarks herald a new error for monitorships. In other words, it is not your father's monitor. We will look at change in monitorships from the white-collar enforcement and defense perspective from Bethany Hengsbach. Mikhail Ryder-Gordon will look at the global aspects of new DOJ monitor focus. Christina Ravello will discuss how ethics and compliance assessments help drive more compliant companies. Jesse Kaplan brings his views on the twin topics of antitrust and healthcare compliance. And in part five, we conclude with Affiliated Monitors founder, Ben DeCiani, who looks at where monitors and monitor ships are going in 2022 and beyond. First, a word about our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors was the first company in the United States to focus on providing top quality, independent integrity monitoring and assessment services across a wide range of regulated industries and professions. What distinguishes AMI professionals from others is that monitoring is AMI's business. It is not a sideline to some other professional practice or service. AMI has been the corporate integrity monitor for more than 850 matters involving large multinational companies and individual practitioners. For more information, check out their website, www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this episode of Not Your Father's Monitors, I joined by Christina Ravello to discuss how ethics and compliance assessments help drive more compliant companies. This podcast series is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today I'm thrilled to have with me Christina Ravello from Affiliated Monitors. We're going to focus on ethics and compliance assessments. So first of all, Christina, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me and welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Christina, as monitoring um, w- in, will increase uh, based upon the Department of Justice's statements through Lisa Monaco, I'd like to maybe focus on some monitoring skills that you and your colleagues at Affiliated Monitors see in the rise of uh, proactive uh, monitorship. So could you maybe give us uh, some uh, initial thoughts on the use of proactive assessments? Yeah, Tom, you know, as you mentioned, we are going to see an increase in the use of monitorships. And from our perspective, our firm, Affiliated Monitors, we not only conduct 
um, monitorships, but we also conduct proactive assessments or proactive monitorships, if you will, um, which essentially we help companies review their ethics and compliance program. We already conduct monitorships under different regulators uh, requirements. And so we know exactly what the different regulators are looking for based on the past uh, monitorships that we've conducted. Um, you know, our firm only does monitorship, right? So that's, I think, the great um, niche that we have, as opposed to other firms conducting several types of assessments, including monitorships. So what we do is we use all our know-how and our knowledge from the monitorships that we conduct and use them in our proactive assessment. So for a proactive assessment, a company can come and have us look at just, you know, what are some gaps within, for example, their anti-corruption program or just their ethics program, whatever it might be, or it could be for their entire ethics and compliance program, depending on the field that they're in, we would review it. Um, and again, provide our recommendations based on what we think the regulars might be looking for. These are great because it helps companies get ahead of potential regulators com coming knocking on their door, um, making sure that if someone does come knock on their door to review their, the, you know, or, or get them for something that they violated, they can also show that they've been proactively working on it, that they are seeking to close those gaps and enhance their programs. So, Christina, in terms of the uh, what you, you what you would do. I understand that you would come in and look at a company's policies, procedures, controls, and a wide variety of other issues, and then really wed that with what AMI understands to be the government expectations so that you can present a coherent plan to a company to address any gaps or needs for remediation. Would that be a fair assessment? Yes, absolutely. Uh, unlike many of your colleagues at AMI, you're not a lawyer. Uh, you're, not a you're not a lawyer and your professional background is uh, very different and it, and it gives you a different focus than someone like me who's professionally trained as a lawyer. So I was just wondering if you give a few words about the types of things an internal auditor or a forensic auditor might look at uh, in a proactive assessment. Yeah, no, I think that's a really great point to highlight. You know, I think in the general um, field of compliance, it's great that we are seeing more non-lawyers, um, more individuals with different backgrounds, especially with the auditing background, right? So for me, having a forensic accounting background and auditing eye really does help in these proactive assessments because I'm looking at sort of follow you know, follow the gaps, follow the issues as, you know, the five whys, just digging a little bit deeper as opposed to potentially just checking, okay, there's one law and then they complied with the law, right? So I'm, I'm trying to dig a little bit deeper in the holes, trying to understand companies' internal controls, um, how they implement their controls, whether they're manual, automated, um, where there could be a failure in the control and, and in the process. Um, I like to conduct walkthroughs of a process. That's really how, how my brain works. I think a lot of accountants' brains work this way. Uh, but conducting a walkthrough of your entire process, sitting with different individuals, having interviews, really understanding, sort of being the feet on the ground of whoever's um, implementing that process. And then really picking and, and identifying the different um, failures that could that could come up um, for, throughout the different controls in the process. So from that standpoint, I think we look at it, uh, things from a different lens, right? We always think 
there's something else that could be enhanced. Um, and, and we want to make sure that we are identifying those issues. So I think that an accountant in general and an auditor that, you know, we bring that to the table. Christina, in addition to uh, helping a company identify any gaps or needs in remediation, the three prongs of a compliance program are prevention, detection, and remediation. And it sounds like with this assessment, you can help a company move from a simply a detect mode, if something goes wrong, to really a prevent mode. And do companies understand that that, that can be the more powerful prong because it's much easier to prevent something than try to fix it after it's happened? Absolutely. Yes. And and that's really what we want to do, right, with the proactive assessments is help them identify their gaps and set either new controls or automated control that was failing often manually. And if you move it into an automation, then sometimes it does help. Um, at the end of the day, we still have humans executing. So you might still have some issues, but for the most part, you know, we are helping them. Um, we are helping them evaluate their controls and making sure that they are preventing on f- future failures. Uh, one of the clear themes throughout this podcast series, Christina, is culture and compliance and ethical culture. But all of your colleagues at AMI continually talk about culture. So I wanted to maybe start by asking, is the assessment of culture a part of an overall uh, ethics and compliance assessment? Yes, that is that's one of our, our main focuses as well, because I think a company's culture, um, compliance, compliance culture, and just an ethical culture will tell you a lot about how different controls are being executed, right? So even if we just sit down and have focus groups and interviews with different levels of um, the individuals working at the company from, you know, CEO level all the way to someone sort of executing the individual control at the bottom, um, in as they're describing what they do and just if they say, you know, oh, my boss doesn't care if I approve this on time. Those little conversations that we have lead us to understand the bigger picture of tone at the top as it relates to compliance execution um, and ethical values. And all of that will tell us, you know, how often could we identify individuals not complying with policies or procedures just because the tone at the top is not there, tone at the middle isn't there, and overall their um, culture isn't as ethical and compliant as you know they might make it appear to be. Christina, how do you see culture playing out, not in really response to regulators, but with another stakeholder group for corporations, which are their own employees or those that want to do business with them? And are you seeing culture as a more important business differentiator for talent acquisition now? Yes. You know, as we know, millennials are making up most of the workforce now, and I think they anticipated making a higher than 50% in, in a few years. And millennials, you know, especially post-pandemic, millennials want to be happy and not and money doesn't always get you that level of happiness, right? So, um, they want to work for companies that are ethical, that are socially responsible, that are behind the right things that they care about. And a lot of this really does fall under the department or within the area of ethics and compliance, you know. Um, so I think it's really important for companies in order to a- attract the right talent and retain that talent, because sometimes also you see millennials moving jobs very often. Uh, but those that you know you want to retain are going to care about what you are behind, how ethical you are, how you treat your employees. And all of this has to do with a company culture and the ethical culture. 
Christina, given your professional background in uh, audit and controls, I would be remiss if I didn't ask a couple of questions about controls. And I was wondering if when you sit down with a client and ask them to walk you through controls and there is a control override, are you able to explain that simply because you override a control, it's not bad, it's not a violation of the law, but there must be a business reason and it must be documented. Is is that a message that you're able to ar- ar- articulate to clients so that they have a, a complete package of a regulator comes knocking? Yes, absolutely. We definitely don't advertise having to override controls, but we understand that there are um, emergency instances where you need to override a control that should be properly documented. Um, I actually was just working with a client this last week, and that was part of my sets of questions of how often would something be manually approved? How often would it skip the level of approvals that you have? And how do you document that? What are the reasons? And are you documenting how often a certain department is requiring requiring those overrides, right? Because it could also be this department never wants to comply. Everything seems like it's an emergency for them. And how do you get them to then anticipate those emergencies, if you will, so that they can avoid requiring those overrides? So that is absolutely important and it does need to be documented, but it also should not be utilized often. You know, that's a great point, which is that um, many compliance professionals, I think, particularly lawyers think once a control's in place, it's in stone, it's there forever, but it sounds like controls, much like the rest of a compliance program, is continually monitored and continually improved based upon the information so that uh, you might look at the number of overrides and see, is it a management problem? Is it a culture issue? Or perhaps the control needs to be adjusted. Would that also be a fair assessment? Yes, that absolutely is. I think companies should also think about updating and reviewing their policies, at least annually. Um, In reviewing their policies, they can identify, and if they are tracking violation of their internal policies, they can identify how often did this one section of the policy get failures? How many, um, you know, failures, violations do we have on this? And how can we avoid that, right? So maybe they provided too short of an approval time period, and they need a little bit longer because depending on their industry, you know, that's just how business works. So those are the evaluations they should be conducting, like I said, at least annually. And that is something that we also help review. In the proactive assessments, we review their policies, procedures, um, and through interviews, that's how we identify frustrations from employees where they can tell us, yes, corporate came up with this policy, but every time I need to execute, it is impossible for me to do, or it's impossible for me to, you know, comply with it 100%, and these are the reasons. And so then we would suggest modifications to policies and procedures from that standpoint. Christina, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on uh, affiliated monitors and your role at affiliated monitors, where can they go? Um, they can um, check us out at in, on LinkedIn. We have an affiliated monitors Inc. page, also um, affiliated monitors.com. Um, uh, Christina, this has been great. Uh, I've learned a lot and I look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you so much, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, Not Your Father's Monitor. If you want more information on Affiliated Monitors, check out their website, www.affiliatedmonitors.com. I hope you'll join us in our next episode where we visit with Affiliated Monitors Managing Director, Jesse Kaplan, 
who looks at the intersection of healthcare and antitrust monitorships. This special five-part podcast series is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.